I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past and the big stories of today through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, grief. If we live long enough, it's something we will all have to confront. How do people handle it? And how judgmental are we when people handle it differently? For example, Lindy Chamberlain. Darren Hinch, welcome to another episode of That's Life. Thank you, Tony. Let's go. We're going to talk about grief. Now, everyone's going to handle grief in some way during their lifetime. Uh, You've handled your own share of grief too. Now, uh, we we want to talk about uh, how people judge grief, but I want to talk quickly about, you know, people don't know this story. Your first wife, the day of the wedding, walking down the aisle. Tell the story. Walking down the aisle, Lana and her uncle Jeff were walking down the aisle and he died in church during our wedding. Um, Before? Before we got married. The wedding. Before we got married. um, I was standing at the altar with my back to them, as you traditionally do, uh, but I did sneak a glance at them, happily walking down the the aisle and smiling, and then I turned back and... uh, being a former police rounds reporter, I I knew what had suddenly happened because I heard a death rattle and I knew somebody had died. And I turned around and saw Uncle Jeff on the ground and his older brother, Lana's father, Alan, had died only four years earlier uh, from a heart attack. And on the day of our wedding, I found out later on, Uncle Jeff didn't take his pills and he was so happy and so thrilled and walked down the aisle and then then died and uh, I immediately ran back down to to where they were and grabbed Lana and there were enough people around trying to take care of him and took her out into the vestry because I was more worried about her than, than anybody um, and the bizarre thing was well we had to postpone the wedding for about two hours because there was a dead body in the church and the police had to come, and the coroner had to come, the coronial people. Um, and two things I remember very clearly. One was that my parents, who couldn't afford to come to our wedding, they couldn't afford to come from New Zealand, they had phoned the reception area to wish us well and were told by the reception people that the reception had been delayed for several hours because there had been a double fatality in the wedding party. So my mum and dad thought that Lana and I were dead for about three hours. Um, Her auntie Zena, and looking back on it, I can't believe how how controlled she was. But I suspect, like most of us, we're just all in shock. Rather than control, we're just in shock. Didn't know what to do, how to do, what to happen. And she insisted... She insisted that the uh, the wedding go ahead. But I assure you, when they this did the part, the wife of hmm? the man who died. Yes, yeah, her auntie, the wife of the man who died, who'd been dead for an hour, two hours, and she said, "You must go ahead with it," because they knew I'd borrowed money to fly back from New York 
to get married. And I couldn't go back to New York and come back again. And I think maybe that was in her mind as well. And But she, Auntie Zena said, we've got to go ahead with this. And as I said, I think it's probably all in shock. But when we got to the part about till death us do part, you could have heard a pin drop. You know, it was just, my God, we've got Uncle Jeff's gone. Anyway, we, we had the reception, but we cancelled the band. We didn't have a bridal dance. We didn't have bridal waltz. We didn't do any of that. And whenever else went home, we were married. The wedding was at a church in Mossman. Um, late that night, Lara and I walked down to a place called the Spit, near the Spit Bridge. And it must have been close to midnight. And we just sat on a rock and stared at the water for about an hour, which is not the ideal wedding to have. Um, the other time grief had really hit our family was um, my sister Barbara, my elder sister Barbara. Uh, her son Rodney had just turned 16 and was about to start work on the following Monday. And on the weekend, he went rabbit shooting with his mates. And one of them, recklessly, didn't have his his shotgun uncocked and broken, as you should always do when you're on a farm. He had it upright and cocked. As he jumped over a log, the, the, the rifle went off, the shotgun went off, and shot my nephew in the head and killed him. He was 16. Uh, and I was doing some writing about this recently, and I... I wrote to my sister, to Barbara, because I'd said, we've never really discussed this at any length, but you, your faith seemed to support you. I'm an atheist, but she is religious, and I think it did. But she also made the point that her husband, Les, between them, they supported each other. And for years, I was so admiring of them because those football, that football team, including the boy who killed him, would come round to their farm every weekend after their game and sit around and chat and josh about. And, and my sister encouraged it. And I thought, that is, so, that is so strong. That is so good. That they would still embrace. 20 years later, they were still seeing these same kids who'd grown up and had kids. The one, the one thing that helped our family, oh, two things. One, I regret. When Rodney, my nephew, died, we're at his funeral, and I'm sitting next door to my dad. And as the coffin was moving out, my dad tried to jump out and throw himself on the coffin, and I stopped him. And looking back now, I think, how dare you? Why did you? People show their grief in different ways. And if my dad wanted to show his grief by, by prostrating himself in front of the coffin, then that's his call. You know, that's his call. Um, my mum had, had um, we all went and saw Rodney in, in his coffin before the funeral. And my mum ref told my dad not to go. And we accepted that. And in retrospect, we shouldn't have. Because it took him longer than most of us to accept his grandson's death. He should have been allowed to go there and see Rodney and talk to us around the coffin. You know, I mean, I even made a bad joke 
uh, in front of my sister and said, uh, "Typical Hinch, Rodney still got his mouth open." You know, and, and we all we laughed and 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 clung together. You know, but on that very day, ironically, the very day of his funeral, his older brothers, Peter, his 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 partner Anna, gave birth to Rachel on the day of the funeral, and to me at least, it was like. The world turns. The world turn turns. There is a reason for every season, you know. And and the fact that another member of the family had had given birth on the day we buried my nephew sort of showed a uh, showed a continuum, which which helped the family a lot. The reason I want to talk about grief today because it's only recently that we had the fortieth anniversary of the death of Azaria Chamberlain. Uh, and you've seen Lindy on television, and they're doing a special, etc., on on this. Um, I, and I have to admit, I was one of the doubters. I early on on radio believed that Lindy Chamberlain probably did it. If you saw the specials lately and the the stuff lately, you'd know only only a nincompoop could now believe that that a dingo didn't get her baby. Um, a guy called John Bryson, I think his name was, wrote a book called Evil Angels about the Chamberlain case. And at the time, I wrote a foreword for it or an endorsement of it. And I didn't say she didn't do it, but I remember saying something like, this is the best case in Lindy Chamberlain's defence you'll ever read. Uh, and I, like many, I... Uh, didn't believe it, and I, I, why I say we handled grief differently, that's why a lot of Australians believed she was guilty, because they didn't grieve the way that you might grieve. I remember that clearly, that whole episode very, very clearly. Mm. And, I, and I was in Alice Springs, and I was in the Northern Territory wow. in 1982, uh, the year that she was actually found uh, Guilty because Cesare Chamberlain went missing in August of 1980. Mm -hmm. Then there was a a uh, coronial inquiry which found in Lindy's favour. Yes, Dennis Barrett was the the, right. the magistrate, and that was televised right around Australia, which was a first to try and convince people. Yeah, but I'm interested in why you didn't think that. Uh, that a dingo took the baby, and why you thought she was guilty. What what did you base that on? I think, looking back, it was badly on the way they didn't grieve. I mean, remember, they were Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, they believed in their God very fervently, which I think got them through it, Michael and, and Lindy. Um, they came out and showed a big picture of her somewhere. Remember that one? They, mm. and and they, didn't, they didn't grieve the way many of us think you should grieve. They didn't show, show any grief. And, uh, and she... She seemed cold and detached. When you see now the documentaries, there's no way known that Lindy Chamberlain could have gone back to the tent, picked up her daughter, taken her to the car, cut her throat, hit the body, and then walked back to the other campers with not a, not a skerrick of blood on her. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the fact was that we didn't know until I saw docos recently one of the other campers had a photo of a dingo scavenging around their tent an hour before Azaria disappeared. 
And that picture was never shown to a jury, was never shown to an inquest. And, I mean, supposedly uh, Michael hid the body in a camera bag. What turned out to be either dirt or dust or, or rust remover uh, was not blood at all. I mean, the woman who was the so-called expert had only been in the job for about two months. It was one of the greatest um, miscarriage of justice this country's ever had, and I, and I apologize for my part in it because I, d- I just didn't believe her. Um, the the issue of grief too is uh, how how intrusive should the media be in covering someone's grief do you remember the plane crash at Essendon, yes, Essendon airport. airport we covered it I read there with Dennis O'Kane we raced out there and he said I remember he said I'm trying to cut in he said to me I just started radio very new and he said shouldn't we take a, a tape recorder Darren I'm running off there with a notebook and he said you're in radio shouldn't we take a tape recorder we had no mobile phone no no tape recorder no nothing we had and was I'm just <laughs> running off with my notebook you know, we go, well, in that case and the Willisie program was very bad on this Willisie the, the woman, a plane crashed into a house and killed a family, right? The entire family. Entire, except the father. Except for the father. Yeah. And the Willsey program, I remember it distinctly, Willsey hung on until he got the father to cry. He worked on that man to induce tears. And that is bad journalism. Not only that, but I remember the front page of the would have been the, the Sun newspaper back then. Mm-hmm. Now, this man's name the was... The News Pictorial. Yes, Sun News Pictorial. The man's name was Sam Gully, if I yes, remember yes. correctly. Now, he'd lost his wife, four or five children, yeah. and I think his mother-in-law, because the plane had taken off at Essendon Airport. And crashed into his crashed. house. He'd gone to look at some properties that he was thinking to buy, like yeah. a country farm he wanted to buy. On the way back, he sees this fireball in his street, turns out to be his house. A couple of days later, there's the funeral of all the family, and there's the close-up shot of the coffin going into the ground of one of the family members and the grief on his face. Now, I remember there was an enormous amount of controversy about that photograph as to whether it was appropriate to show that man's face on the front page of the biggest-selling newspaper in Melbourne. Yeah, it, 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 it is a quandary um, because there is a news factor, but there must be a, a level where you don't intrude, where you suddenly back off. You have to back off because i mean when that television program um they they milked it and milked it and milked it until he cried and that is wrong i mean going back to the azaria chamberlain one remember all the stuff about that azaria meant something satanic and all that sort of stuff of uh, the church got rubbish the uh, her name got rubbished uh and 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 I mean, it destroyed their lives. I had a, I had a, a, a weird moment, um, a weird connection, a Forrest Gump moment. I'm in court on one of my contempt of court charges. And Henry Winnicky was my uh, barrister who became a, a judge. And I think a governor of Victoria as well. Well, you're not, yeah, that's right. Um, he, uh, I think he whispered to me, he said, turn around. And sitting behind me in court, were Michael and Lindy Chamberlain in my court case. I'm like, what the hell are they doing here? But they were looking for a, 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 a barrister to to run their appeal and to run their case for them, you know. And I look, I, I I'm I, I feel shame shame that I that I 
went along with a mob and thought, yeah, she must have done it, you know. Uh, um, at, at any stage, did you interview Lindy Chamberlain? No, I never had. Did you interview no. Michael Chamberlain? No. I think you did interview Michael I think I did Michael somewhere down the track, yeah. Because he came into 3AW at some stage. And uh, I did actually go up to him and say I was one of the very few, and I was... Who, who didn't buy the story that yeah. they had killed their own baby. Why would they do it? Well, can, can, can you imagine what they went through? I mean, here's a couple, a religious couple, who've been accused of murdering their baby and and for years. And I'm sure there are still people out there who go, oh, she must have done it. When If you see any of the docos, and I advise people to watch them, there is no way known that they were guilty. There's no way known. And the fact that she did three or four years in jail for a crime she didn't commit, for kill, allegedly killing her own baby. She gave birth in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Darren, you were a police reporter for many years in uh, Sydney, mm. which meant covering crimes, victims of crime, that sort of thing. Um uh, when you did you do the old you know the door knock on the house of someone who was a victim of crime wanting to yeah. speak to them? Yeah, I, I, I did. How, door how knock. did you treat all that? When you look back on it, uh, we were callous. I mean, that was your editor sent you out there. I mean, I I sent as when I was editor of the city's son. Uh, uh, I sent. Uh, about an 18, 19 year old female journalist to door knock after the train crash disaster in Sydney. Granville. Granville. And uh, I sent an 18 or 19 year old girl because she was doing the night shift. And I said, okay, go out and do some door knocks and get some pictures and get some stories. 18, you know, and you're, you're suddenly out there with grieving people. I mean, I remember once going and knocking on a door as a young police reporter, I probably was 20 years of age, and saying to a woman, how old was your daughter? And she said, what do you mean was? The cops hadn't been there. She didn't know her daughter was dead. You know, I mean, and we're, we're kids. We're, we're teenagers, and yet we're trying to be grown-up journos. And imagine going and knocking on somebody's door and saying, how old was your daughter? This is uh, uh, what a lot of people, uh, the anger toward media by a, a lot of people is that they are callous, mm. that they, you know, and, and Willis, he did a lot of this. You know, you could see as he was probing somebody, the camera would zoom in to their eyes purposely to try and catch some, well, some well, his, his producer was Phil Davis, who used to be my ex-wife's partner, Jackie Weaver. Um, he would... He was a producer, a very good producer, and he would push until he got the tear shot. He would he'd be in Willis's ear saying, closer, and to the cameraman, closer, 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 until he got them crying. And that was the way it was. You know? I want to go to 1997 okay. now. In fact, uh, it's the anniversary, the 23rd anniversary of the passing of Princess Diana. Mm -hmm. Now, we're talking about grief. Now, this was the grief of an entire nation, the mm. scenes we saw during uh, her death and the week afterwards and then the funeral, unprecedented mm -hmm. in, you know, stiff... And not repeated grief. either. No. Uh, what was your view of all that as it happened? The thing that sticks in my mind, I remember I was at the farm when I heard that, that she was dead. Uh, the thing that sticks in my mind is that the royals, including the Queen, behaved so badly that they stuck up there either Balmoral or Sandringham, wherever they were, at first refused to lower the flag to half-mast on Buckingham Palace, then didn't come back 
I mean, they went days. From memory, uh, Tony Blair, then Prime Minister, went to Balmoral and said to the Queen, unless you get back to, to, to Buckingham Palace and show some attention here, you won't have a monarchy. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it's virtually from some of the stuff you've seen since then. He went up there and said, hey, this is, you don't understand how bad this is. The Duke of Edinburgh didn't want Charles to go to Paris to bring her body home because she's not a royal anymore. I mean, how, I mean, the man's always been a prick, but I mean, how, how awful is that? This is your ex-wife, and you're told by your father you can't go to Paris and bring her home. And they, and it, it was the biggest outpouring of grief I think we've ever seen. You know, and now I wasn't one of Princess Di's biggest fans um, for a lot of reasons, uh, but but the way she died, and it wasn't a conspiracy. It wasn't it wasn't the MI5 or. The French police. I mean, the driver got pissed and 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 running away from the from the uh, paparazzi, he smashed the car into a into a uh, a stanchion. Uh, I'm uh, sitting here trying to think of other big momentous events like that, and I guess John Lennon's assassination mm. comes. To I went back years later for um, one of the last jobs I ever did for a Sunday night on Channel Seven. I went back to to uh, 79th Street, whatever, 72nd Street, and, and went to the outside the Dakota. And there's still there's chips in the wall from the bullet hole where where Lennon was, where some of the bullets were shot and fired. Um, that was just, you know, it's just a ghastly thing. I mean, I mean, you know, anybody in the public eye runs a risk of something like that. But the way that Lennon died was just dreadful. And one of the best interviews I've done for Sunday night was with Yoko Ono uh, years and years and years later. You know, and we, we talked about it all. Uh, uh, tell us about that interview. What happened with that? Uh, with her? Yeah. Um, I was told you can't mention John Lennon. <laughs> Which seems the only reason you'd be talking to her, right? Yes, that's and, right. And when uh, I did, by the way, did you interview her in the Dakota building? No, 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 in a hotel in uh, in in downtown Manhattan. Um, I could see out of the corner of my eye her minder going ape shit with my producer once I mentioned John Lennon, you know, and uh, and 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 she talked at length, and I said, I mean, I said you were hated. I mean, you didn't only break up the Beatles. But you were Asian. You weren't some white blonde bimbo groupie. You were Asian. And she opened up about it and said, yes, I was. And that's what they hated most of all. You know, I wasn't a white groupie. You know, um, and I could see how they caught my eyes. I said, this guy going, going crazy. But she talked about it at, at great length. And, uh, uh, I mean, she can be weird at times. And I, I follow her, I follow her on, on, on Twitter and... And, and she can't sing, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was an amazing it was an amazing time. Uh, another person who I guess has shown his grief, uh, probably in a you know the most positive way that anyone could, I guess, is the father of Messina Helvargas, oh, yeah. uh, George Helvargas. Now he, his daughter was killed tending to her grandmother's grave, stabbed to death her grave in Faulkner Cemetery. Yeah. And the grief that he would have felt on the death of his Listen, daughter. George, George and I, I call him the man in black. Uh, George and I have been to court cases together to watch 
other killers be sentenced. Uh, I admire him so much. He's dedicated decades now to the memory of his daughter. Um, I do worry sometimes, and I don't know this is true. I don't know this is true, but I, I watched, I think Christine, his wife, I've watched her hair go grey, white. Um, I suspect that George and my own sister, if you went into their house, you'd probably find a shrine to their dead child with a picture of their dead child and some ballet shoes or, or, or football shoes or something. And I've always thought, thought a thought that was probably unhealthy. But then a secondary thought is, well, well, what do you do? Do you throw your daughter's ballet shoes away? Do you pretend that your son's football boots aren't precious? I mean, I'm sure that my sister Barbara still has Rodney's football jersey or Guernsey either on the wall or again draped somewhere. Is that so wrong? You know, you've, you're preserving what you remember. And George has been amazing. He's given speeches at police academies. He's he, he is an incredible man, and uh, uh, yeah, he, he he should be rewarded for it. I remember Darren, you talking about uh, the death of your parents too. Your mother died of cancer. Cancer. Yeah. Uh, you flew back to New Zealand to be with her by her. Yeah, I nursed her to her death the night she died. Now, yeah. now, how do you cope with with that? You know. Um, uh, well, on uh, uh, my mother's death, um, I sat with her the last night, and I, and I had this weird feeling that she stayed alive for me to get get, to get back. And I was alone, sitting on her glory box, uh, which if you have to, if you're young, you won't know what a glory box is. It's what women used to keep their stuff in before they got married. The glory. So I sat on her velveteen glory box, and I did consider she was in such pain. She weighed less than probably 30 kilos, I thought of putting a pillow over her face and ending it for her, which then became a glossy magazine headline. He just wanted to kill his mum, right? Um, I just want to end her agony. I mean, she was a very private person and she's lying in bed with a pillow between her legs because she was incontinent. And this is not the way you want your mother to go. Uh, but I, um, you know, I... I she, in the end, she passed quietly, which is what we wanted. She she did have, and we, I wish we had a had then what we've got in Victoria now, a voluntary euthanasia, which the Justice Party has supported all the way along. If you want to go, if you have no dignity in your life anymore, go. I mean, if I if I suddenly lose my mind or or my bladder control and I want to go, I'll say thanks for the hall and I'll kill myself. Um, I thought that back when I got cancer. If I hadn't got a transplant and my quality of life had deteriorated, I would have topped myself. And I have no qualms about that at all. I've told my friends, I've told my loved ones, that's the way I'll go. And, uh, and uh, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a friend who has no quality of life. I won't go into any details about it, but he decided he wanted to die and I offered to fly to Zurich with him and buy two tickets over and one ticket home and let him go with some style. Uh, he since changed his mind and that's his call. But if he wanted to ever do it, I would, I would do it with him. That's pretty confronting though, Darren. I mm -hmm. mean, you telling your friends that uh, you would do, I mean, I mean, how, how would you do it? Uh, you, would you well, you hope you get some Nembatel or something like that. And uh, I mean, you can get it from, from Mexico. Look, one of the worst ones I had, cases I had, a woman wrote to me when I was on 3AW. 
and she'd bought some Nembatel from uh, a vet in Mexico. So she had the illegal. She smuggled it into Australia. Her daughters, two daughters came over from South Australia to be with her, to be with their mother when she died. She was terminally ill and in very much pain. She was in a motel. She ordered her daughters to leave because she didn't want them to be endangered or possibly charged with assisting a suicide. And so this woman died alone like a junkyard dog when she should have been able to die holding her daughter's hands and saying, goodbye, kids, I love you. That's why I supported and always have supported uh, voluntary euthanasia because if you, 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 you... Look, whose life is it anyway? You have the right to live and it's precious, but you also have the right to die. And I tell you, I would, I would top myself in two minutes. wouldn't cross my mind. wouldn't bother me at all. And all my friends and family know that. Mr Hinch, on that terrible thought... <laughs> Thank uh, you very much. Brighten things up, you know. <laughs> as, as, as they say in the life of Brian, always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> Bye.